I've made a couple of trips to Israel leading uh, pilgrimage groups from the various churches that I've served as pastor. And on one of those trips, we went to Caesarea Philippi where this uh, profession of Peter took place. And we got to see the remains, the ruins of the religious uh, temple complex that's there. It's not a Jewish complex. It's a Gentile religious complex with a temple to Pan and the remains of the temple to the imperial cult, to the emperor. It was an incredible sight. Uh, you walk up the hill, you climb this, these carved in stones up the side of a hill there to this massive cave, and the inside is covered with soot, the ceiling is covered with soot, and you stand there and you look at this central stone altar and you read the signs there that describe this site as the temple of Pan and that at various times in history there have been some rather horrific sacrifices that took there, especially sacrifice of people. And next to it, up against the wall of the, the structure of the, of, of the hillside, and extending out from it are the remains of the temple to the Roman emperors that was built there. Because Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon is actually a Greek and then Roman town. Temple to the Roman emperor was there. The remains remain to this day. The remains remain to this day. It was amazing to walk around the complex and to see it. And then to walk back down to where the headwaters of the Jordan River come out from the springs under Mount Hermon to flow down into the Jordan River Valley towards the Sea of Galilee. The waters rushing quietly, trickling through the rocks. You walk along the tops of what remains of the walls of the city of Caesarea Philippi, and you can almost feel the presence of the ancient world surrounding you there. You can see the remains to the side and under your feet. And it's in this setting that I remember our group stopped to read this passage and Peter's profession of Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Christ the one whom God had selected to bring God's news, God's Word, God's presence to a broken and hurting world then and today. It was overwhelming. I'm feeling it now, the, the sense of immediate presence in that site, at that location, at that time. In the midst of conflict, in the midst of danger. I remember we were there, the first time I was there, we were there just at the beginning of one of the conflicts with Lebanon, and I, I remember standing on the hillside there looking out over the Jordan River Valley from the Golan Heights, not too far away from Caesarea Philippi, and watching as missiles, rockets were coming in overhead and down to hit outside of Tiberias, a city on the Sea of Galilee. And we had to get back into the van and head down the, the hillside and into the Jordan River Valley. And as we're going down off Golan Heights, ups coming Israeli army forces to take the positions at the top of the hill to make sure that if the Syrians wanted to take advantage of the moment, 
and they couldn't do it. It was a frightening place and time to be there. It was a frightening place and time to be there at Caesarea Philippi. And yet in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the war, in the midst of the danger, standing right there, I could feel the presence of Christ. I could feel the presence of God. That presence that must have been part of the reason why Peter proclaimed Him the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. Our anointed one, God's anointed one for us. That's the context in which all of this is said. That's the context in which the early church began to proclaim the gospel because the early church was living in a time of war and a time of conflict, a time of disagreement. It wasn't too long after the death and resurrection of Jesus that the Romans, the, the Jews in, entered into an insurrection against Rome and the Romans had to circle Jerusalem and combat it. And eventually in 70 AD, they pierced the walls and destroyed the temple and expelled the Jews from Judea. And the church, the Jewish Christian church with it. In that context, the Christians remembered Jesus' words, remembered Jesus' preaching, remembered this event at Caesarea Philippi and Peter's own profession of Jesus as the Anointed One. That profession, that proclamation, that affirmation is the core and the source of the good news. Now, what's good about the good news? The phrase good news or gospel, gospel is um, gottspiel, it, it's rooted in the old English word for the good story or the good account or the good message or the good news. That's what gospel means. It translates a Greek word, euagelion, the, the proclamation or the the cry, literally, of word of the birth of the emperor. Aha! The Romans used that phrase, that term, euagelion, to proclaim the, the good news of the birth of the emperor, the one who came to reign. So when an emperor, a child of the emperor were to be born, there'd be an euagelion, a proclamation that the emperor is alive and here comes his successor. That was the basic idea. And then when you would have a succession to the throne, you'd have a euagelion again, the proclamation, here is the emperor. And in the Roman parlance, the emperor who would be understood as God. And many of them understood themselves as God or sons of God. The church, the early church, in its earliest stages, in the 30s and 40s A.D., just a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church used this word, the proclamation or the herald of the birth of the king, the birth of the emperor, to speak about the message of Christ, to speak about Christ Himself. You see, the gospel, the phrase, the word gospel, 
means the message of Jesus, and even more originally, the message about Jesus, that Jesus is the Mashiach, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Christos, the Chosen and Anointed One of God, and as the church understood, the Son of God, God incarnate in human flesh. So it's the message of Jesus, what Jesus preached, what Jesus did in His healings, in His feeding of the 5,000 and others, of His transforming of broken and hurting lives, of His life and His preachings, His teachings, His ministry, His Sermon on the Mount, the stories of His parables, all that He said and all that He did. His institution of the Last Supper, His arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, His trial before the Sanhedrin, His trial before Pilate, His conviction, His journey to Golgotha, His crucifixion on the cross and His death and His burial, and yes, His resurrection. All of this story of and about Him and how the church then understood Him is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the good news of Jesus. That's what the good news is. That's what the gospel is. And I was struck in reading today's passage from Mark's gospel, Jesus' own words, where He says, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There are lots of ways that we take up our cross. Our cross is manifested in many ways, but the way that kind of strikes me today, and it flows from even further down in the passage here where he says, what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. These words echoed around in my brain this week repeatedly. How do we take up the cross? What is our cross to bear? This week, I received several interesting emails. Um, one was a general one in which criticized the United Methodist Church for not being true to what they thought of as the gospel. Another one was specific to me, criticizing me for being a false preacher or false prophet, a tongue of the serpent, as they phrased it. Now, usually I, I like these emails. I get them occasionally. I have for years, and they've gotten worse recently. And, and oftentimes, you know, I'll, I'll pass them around to friends, and we'll, we'll laugh about it. And one of the amazing things is said at the end of the email, the last email I got, it said, I will pray for you. I often get that remark, I'll pray for you. But this one said more than, I'll pray for you 
that your ministry will end quickly so you won't drag any more to hell. Wow. (laughs) My reply back was, I'll pray for you too, especially for that. The cross that we bear, that's one of them right there. I have been in situations, in places, and at times when I have had people who have been harmed by the church, who have been hurt by the church, who have been oppressed by the church, who have been told they don't belong, I've had them look at me and tell me that I have hurt them. I may not have, but they'll say that in general. I'm kind of like their general vicarious target. That's okay. Because the cross that I and other progressive Christians carry, the cross that we bear is often the cross of the pain that has been done to others by the church and its judgmentalism and its oppression and its segregation. I thought it was interesting. This is something that I heard many, many years ago. It's still true today. It is the year 2021, and yet the most segregated hour of American life is the church hour. (laughs) It is. The time when we worship, we tend to split then racially, ethnically, linguistically. It's the most segregated hour. And we wonder why people who look in from the outside see what the church does and see what the church says and say they don't even equate, they don't even get close to getting to be the same thing. Our creed does not match our deed. What we say may be beautiful, but what we do is often a failure of the gospel. A failure to live our lives as Jesus called us to live. The cross that I bear, the cross that we bear, one of the crosses that we bear, is the cross of Christians' failure. Our own or others matters not failure to live the life of the gospel. The failure in that we do precisely what Peter did because Peter who affirms Jesus, who proclaims Jesus, who heralds Jesus, who proclaims the gospel, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. You are the Mashiach, the anointed one of God. The very disciple who made that affirmation the first time, Peter, would rebuke Jesus for saying that he would have to die. And Jesus would say to him, get behind me, Satan. And would later, while Jesus is on trial, deny Jesus three times before others. At Peter, we uh, we can be, the church has been since the very beginning. Jesus said, on you, 
I will build my church, you are rocky, and on you I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Good news. Guess what? The church has done what Peter has done repeatedly. When our actions don't equate with our words, when our deeds don't match our creed, we deny Jesus every time. And we have that cross to bear. Well, Greg, we we don't preach condemnation and judgmentalism here. No, we don't. We don't practice that here. No, we don't. I don't preach a gospel or a message that isn't the gospel, but a, a message of judgment and condemnation. No, I don't. And I never have. But, Christians for centuries have, and that's one of the crosses that we bear. We must take up our cross, confess our joint sin, and follow Jesus. That's part of what living the gospel means, living as Jesus called us to live welcoming and accepting, giving and forgiving, proclaiming and loving. May we, as we go out these doors into this world, may we look and see and know and embrace others making our deeds match our creed. May we not just proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. May we not just proclaim the good news of the coming of the King. May we not just say the right words, but may we live them. I mean, sometimes the church doesn't even say the right words. We say words that harm and hurt. I pastored a church in North Carolina that had a balcony. And at the steps going up to the balcony, there were several things there, but there was a sign just as you started going up the stairs that said, colored seating. Uh Uh-huh. They were big. They thought they were really doing great because they let them into the building. And that was in 1990 long time ago, but things haven't changed much. Hmm. We, our creed doesn't match our deed, and sometimes our creed, our proclamation, is lacking too. Our cross to bear, one of our crosses to bear. There are plenty of crosses. Today, I'm just choosing this one. Our cross to bear in following Jesus is remembering and recognizing, confessing and repenting of our joint culpability as Christians in failing to share the good news with all and to welcome all into God's family. I give thanks and praise to God that I pastor a church that does welcome all, that is open to all, 
I give thanks and praise to God for the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus, His words and His deeds before all. But we must take up that cross too and follow Jesus for the sake of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We must take up our cross and follow and make that extra effort to welcome all into the family of faith, to welcome all into a safe place to be followers of Jesus. For the sake of the gospel, let us take up our cross and follow Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. May God's be the Son.